This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. Good morning online. Those of you who are joining us who are not in the retreat, we are in retreat today. A day and a half today and half of tomorrow doing the usual retreat stuff. Right? Getting up early and eating Oriyoki meals and chanting. And this morning in our service, we chanted the, uh, the text. That's the topic of the talks I'm giving today and tomorrow which is Genjo Koan. And although we already chanted it this morning, I've, I've handed it out. Does everybody have a copy or a chant book? It's in the chant book as well, if you don't have a copy of this. You have one of these, you can share one if you... I'm going to talk about basically the first page. So it probably wouldn't hurt to chant it again. <laughs> and this way people online can hear it, if you're not familiar with it. So why don't we just read it, actually, rather than chant it. We'll just read it together. So this is what Dogen says, Genjo Koan. As all things are Buddha Dharma, there is delusion and realization, practice, birth, and death, and there are Buddhas and sentient beings. As the myriad things are without an abiding self, there is no delusion, no realization, no Buddha, no sentient being, no birth and death. The Buddha way is basically leaping clear of the many and the one. Thus there are birth and death, delusion and realization, sentient beings and Buddhas. Yet in attachment blossoms fall, and in aversion we spread. To carry yourself forward and experience myriad things is delusion. That myriad things come forth and experience themselves is awakening. Those who have great realization of delusion are Buddhas. Those who are greatly deluded about realization are sentient beings. Further, there are those who continue realizing beyond realization, or in delusion throughout delusion. When Buddhas are truly Buddhas, they do not necessarily notice that they are Buddhas. However, they are actualized Buddhas who go on actualizing Buddhas. When you see forms or hear sounds fully engaging body and mind, you grasp things directly. Unlike things and their reflections in the mirror, and unlike the moon and its reflection in the water, when one side is illuminated, the other side is dark. The Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be actualized by myriad things. When actualized by myriad things, your body and mind, as well as the bodies and minds of others, drop away. No trace of realization remains, and this no trace continues endlessly. When you first see Dharma, you imagine you are far away from its environs, but Dharma is already correctly transmitted. You are immediately your original self. When you ride in a boat and watch the shore, you might assume that the shore is moving, but when you keep your eyes closely on the boat, you can see that the boat moves. 
Similarly, if you examine myriad things with a confused body and mind, you might suppose that your mind and nature are permanent. When you practice intimately and return to where you are, it will be clear that nothing at all has unchanging self. Firewood becomes ash, and it does not become firewood again. Yet do not suppose that the ash is future and the firewood past. You should understand that firewood abides in the phenomenal expression of firewood, which fully includes past and future, and is independent of past and future. Ash abides in the phenomenal expression of ash, which fully includes future and past, just as firewood does not become firewood again after it is ash, you do not return to birth after death. This being so, it is an established way in Buddha Dharma to deny that birth turns into death. Accordingly, birth is understood as no birth. It is an unshakable teaching in Buddha's discourse that death does not turn into birth. Accordingly, death is understood as no death. Birth is an expression complete this moment. Death is an expression complete this moment. They are like winter and spring. You do not call winter the beginning of spring or summer the end of spring. Okay, we can stop there. <laughs> That's enough for today. <laughs> so, we, for these two days, I'm talking about this essay, uh, which Dogen, the founder of our uh, particular school of Buddhism, wrote soon after returning to Japan from his time in China. And it was in China that uh, Dogen, a Japanese person, found his true teacher and was authorized to teach what we call Soto Zen, or Dong Zen in Chinese. The title is Zen Genjo Kawan, which I'm going to talk about in a moment. And this essay, uh, towards the end of his life, Dogen chose it to be the first essay in his collection of essays that was uh, the uh, main body of his teaching. And I don't know if people know this, I didn't know it when I first was studying Dogen, but the collection that Genjo Cohen is part of was considered a kind of special teaching for a long time and was locked away and nobody studied it for like 500 years. It wasn't until the, I think the late the 17th century that it was sort of brought out from its hiding place in, in temples and brought into modern Japanese and people began to study it. So for half a millennium, no one was really working intensively with these texts. That blew my mind, actually. Did I, he ask for that? To... No. Okay. As far as we know, but he also died suddenly and young. So this, he considered this, and when he was revising his essays and putting them in order, this one he thought should come first. So just a few words about Dogen, if you're not familiar with him. Dogen, or Ehei Dogen, he sometimes gets the honorific title Zenji, which, you know, is like a big Zen teacher, really big Zen teacher, strong Zen teacher. He lived from 1200 to 1253 of our era, right? So he was in the medieval period. He lost both parents at an early age, and he ordained as a monk in the Tendai school at age 13. So from the beginning, he was kind of uh, a wanderer and homeless. 
Tendai was established in Japan in the 8th century, so several hundred years before. And at the time of Dogen, it was one of the dominant sects of Buddhism. Right? And one of its fundamental teachings, which we talked about in the class that I'm offering uh, right now, one of its fundamental teachings is Hongaku in Japanese, or original enlightenment. That is to say, all beings are innately Buddha. Right? And you don't need long lifetimes of practice to develop Buddhahood or to become Buddha. It's available right now. Right? This is uh, a kind of sudden enlightenment, sometimes called a, a sudden realization. Now, this teaching was very influential for Dogen, but it also gave rise to his fundamental question, which has come up recently in other talks and, and in our study. Right? If all beings already have Buddha nature, then why do we suffer? Why do we need to practice, right? Why do we need to meditate, to chant, to offer incense and all the rest of it, right? Why aren't, why aren't, why isn't everything okay, <laughs> right? So it was this question, why do we have to practice, that drove him to take up first Rinzai Zen, a, a different form of Zen than the one we practice, but closely related, still in Kyoto, where he came from, but then ultimately to travel to China with a Rinzai teacher. And it was there traveling around and getting disappointed by various teachers, even in China, right? He was, a, he was hungry for uh, something that made sense to him. It was in China, finally, that he encountered the Chinese Saodong School of Zen and his true teacher, Ru Jing. And under Ru Jing, he had his defining experience uh, of dropping off body and mind, or in Japanese, Shinjin Datsuraku. And after a couple of years, he returned to Japan with authorization to teach from his teacher, Ru Jing, and he started gathering uh, followers in Kyoto, and he started writing. So during our fall practice period, we're a little over halfway through this now, we've been chanting and studying two other early teachings. The Fukan Zazengi, the universal recommendation of Zazen for everyone, which are his instructions for how to meditate, and Bendowa, which we started this past week, the wholehearted endeavor of the way. And these became, actually not Fukan Zazengi, but Bendowa and Genjo Koan, became part of this collection called Shobogenzo, or the treasury of the true Dharma Eye. So he was revising these essays towards the end of his life. He only got through 12 of them uh, when he died at 53, not expecting to die so early. But after his death, his immediate followers continued this work of editing. And thus we have different collections of his essays in different orders and different groupings. He is said to have wanted to create a 100 essay collection and we have two collections. One is a 75 essay collection, which leaves out some that we weren't sure whether they should be included in this, you know, kind of uh, definitive compendium. And there's also a 95 essay version, right? So it's not a completely stable body of work. Genjo Koan was written in 1233, so he was 33 years old when he wrote this. And so it's an early teaching of his. But as I said, he would, had revised it 20 years later, close to his death, and put it first in his preferred collection. 
And one of the interesting things about this text is that it's actually a, a letter. It's a response to a question or a set of questions that were sent to him by a lay disciple, not a monk, but a lay disciple from Kyushu, which is the southernmost of the Japanese islands and not particularly near Kyoto, where he was from. The name of this uh, person is preserved. The, the person's name was Koshu-yo, but we don't have his letter to Dogen. We have the Genjo Koan, which is his response. Right. So this is a response to a layperson's questions. It's not an essay written, you know, kind of out of context and just like, this is what I think about all this, right? He was actually trying to help one of his disciples. So this critical chapter, which is held up by every Soto authority as the essence of Dogen's teaching, was written for a lay student, right? So I think it's also important to realize through this that Dogen had lay followers, and he also had women followers, and followers from all walks of life. So there's a lot of emphasis on monastic practice, but he did not exclude uh, people who were often excluded uh, from this kind of intensive practice. Right? So the takeaway is this teaching is for everyone. Right? Just as he says, the practice of Zazen is for everyone, this teaching, this fundamental teaching, is for everyone. So... Uh, I want to just um, quote a prominent Dogen scholar of the last century, whose name is Nishiari Bokusan, how he characterized Genjo Koan and its place for in Dogen's work and his thought. So this is a quote. Dogen sees straight through the world of the Ten Directions as Genjo Koan, which are his words of iron. <laughs> this is his enduring teaching. Bokusan says, Nishiari Bokusan says, when this phrase, Genjo Koan, is cracked, when you break it open, when you understand it, the 95 chapters appear here and there as branches of it. Right? So this is the, everything else depends on this. For that reason, the lifetime teaching of Dogen is all in the one phrase, Genjo Koan. So this chapter is placed first in the 75-chapter version of Shobogenzo. It was done under the supervision of Dogen, who had the vision for the basic teaching of his school, or of Soto Zen. We can see why Dogen also expounded Bendo-wa, the wholehearted practice of the way, when we think about his compassionate heart that raised the teaching of correctly transmitted samadhi in Japan, where Zen was not yet spread. Right? So Bendawa is his teaching where he kind of expounds his dharma and answers a whole bunch of questions that people have about it, sometimes not very politely. Right? We started studying this last week. So that was you know, kind of like the opening uh, salvo. But, says Nishiari Bokusan, it was in Genjo Koan that Dogen opened up his body and mind and presented the foundation of Buddha's lifetime dharma. Thus, Dogen Zenji concentrated his mind wholeheartedly on this chapter. So you, who are his dharma descendants, should read this fascicle day and night with respect and make it the root of your practice, birth after birth, world after world. Right. 
Nishiari Bokusan didn't mince words. So I decided to talk about this during this retreat because of statements like this and because of the importance that everyone, including Dogen, placed on this essay, and to explore why these teachers have the attitude toward it that they do. So Genjo Koan is the title, but it's also a critical phrase, a critical teaching. So I want to talk about that first. Um, so as Shohaku Okamura says, he's a contemporary teacher and uh, scholar of Dogen, he says that this phrase, Genjo Koan, appears 25 times in various essays of the 75-chapter version of Shobo Genzo. Right? So in the 75 that are in one collection, it appears 25 times. That's about you know a third of all the essays. And the word Genjo, without koan, Genjo by itself, more than 300 times in 65 of the chapters total. Right? So it's constantly coming up. One reason why you know it's described by Nishiari Bokusan as like the you know the source of all these shoots of the other teachings. Gen, the word gen in Genjo means to appear, or to be present in the present moment, or to manifest is another English word that we might use. Right? Uh, Okamura says gen can be a kind of manifestation or actualization of something that's potential into something actual. Right? So potentiality out of, we might say, emptiness that is manifesting as something right here and right now, as a dharma, as a thing, as a phenomenon. Right? So that's gen. Sometimes it's translated as source. Jo, of genjo, means to become complete or accomplish. And Okamura suggests that as a compounded word, genjo, it means to actualize, to appear and become, right? To appear and become, or to become in appearing. And as a noun, it is reality, right now, in this moment. So that's that one word, or that one compound. Koan, genjo koan, is a little more challenging. People have argued about this quite a bit. Um, many of you already know this word, which refers to teaching stories in the Zen tradition that are used by Zen teachers to instruct their students. And they're a kind of inheritance of ours. We, we receive them from, uh, actually mostly from Chinese Tang Dynasty Zen, right? And we, we use them and we learn from them. The stories express a truth and a question, says Okamura. But koan actually has another, uh, not, not independent meaning, but a more, we might say, secular meaning. It can refer to a public document in medieval China, or a public case, like a court case, or a dispute, the resolution of a dispute. So the ko of koan means public, right? And it means to resolve a difficulty in a way that equalizes things, that brings them into balance, or brings the parties in a dispute into some kind of harmony. An of koan can mean a desk or a place to write, or even it can refer to a document. But there are two ways of writing this word on, and another way of writing it, on can mean something like to keep one's place, right? like a writing desk is a place, 
to be in a particular place. And this is usually taken to mean, in the, our case of our place, one's individual function in the whole. And that whole can be of society, which is a very Chinese way of looking at things, right? Everyone has their place. Or of reality, right? Our function as an individual in reality. Okamura sees these as a kind of uh, opposition, like unifying the absolute, this is the equality part, the, the, the uh, resolution part, and the relative, right, or oneness and difference. And that's a fundamental teaching of our school as well. But I think we can also think of the doctrine of Dharma position, which I'll come back to later and uh, today and also tomorrow. Dharma position, or in Japanese, ho-i, the intersection of reality, undifferentiated, seamless reality, right, with the uniqueness of each thing, and also of being or existence within time, right? In this place, time and being intersect, and you appear, and everything else does too. So Okamura, in this discussion of the title, and this phrase and idea, he concludes that in his understanding, Genjo, and this is a quote, is reality actually and presently taking place. And koan is absolute truth that embraces relative truth, right? The oneness of all things that embraces the multiplicity of things. Or even, he says, a question that true reality is asking us. He says, we can say that Genjo Koan means to answer the question from true reality through the practice of our everyday activity. Right? This emphasizes our own individual expression. Another teacher, our Dharma grandfather in this temple, Sojin Mel Weitzman, makes it a little simpler. <laughs> Not so many words for Mel. He says, Ko means equality. That's it for for uh, Sojin Weitzman. And on is difference or momentariness, right? This moment, this one manifestation. And ko is some kind of word in English like even or still, right? That with which we can identify. On is particular, vertical, active, something individual. And where the vertical and horizontal meet is genjo. This right now all-inclusive moment. Okay? So that's how, that's another way of understanding this inclusivity is by this intersection. Um, and he helpfully includes the different translations of the title that uh, different scholars um, offer, and this gives you a sense of how people have tried to understand this concept. Mm. Hee Jin Kim, a Korean scholar who is a great uh, student of Dogen calls it the realization koan, the realization story, or the realization, what? I don't want to call it a riddle, but the, the realization conundrum. Thomas Cleary calls it the issue at hand. <laughs> right? Taizan Maizumi, in a different lineage, says the issue of life. Kaz Tanahashi, whose translations we've read, says actualizing the fundamental point, and that's the one I kind of like, right? The fundamental point, which is this right here. 
So obviously in one talk or even two talks, there is no way to cover everything even in this first page or in this fundamental teaching. So what I want to do with the rest of the time today, and I'm going to try to keep track of the time, um, is to outline some major points in the whole essay um, and then talk about uh, basically the first page down to firewood and ash, which is a wonderful uh, description. Right? And tomorrow I will continue. So here are the are four, we could call them maybe propositions um, or four statements that Sojin, Mel Weitzman, says are like the cornerstones of this chapter, and they appear in the first paragraph. So if you have the text, um, you can follow along, and I'll read them for those of you who are online and may not have it at hand. So here are the four cornerstones that uh, kind of set out the whole thing. The first is, when all dharmas are Buddha dharma, this may be slightly different translation than the one you have, I'm not sure, when all dharmas are Buddha dharma, so all dharmas meaning all phenomenon are Buddha dharma, the, the teaching, when they are Buddha dharma, there are enlightenment and delusion, practice, birth and death, Buddhas and uh, creatures or um, Buddhas and sentient beings as the translation that you have says sentient beings or creatures. That's the first statement. The second um, in Sojin's translation is when the 10,000 dharmas or the 10,000 things are without self, there are no delusion, no enlightenment, no Buddhas, no sentient beings or no creatures, no birth and no death. Right? That's the second proposal. The third is the Buddha way transcends being and non-being, or leaping clear of the many and the one, as our translation in front of you has. Right? <clears throat> Therefore, there are birth and death, delusion and enlightenment, sentient beings and Buddhas. And then the fourth one is, nevertheless, or yet, in attachment uh, blossoms fall, and weeds spring up with our aversion, or in aversion weeds spread. Right. So Sojin says, these are four ways of looking at reality from the point of view of awakening. But it's kind of confusing. <laughs> right. Dogen also says, if you go to the next paragraph, this is not one of the four propositions, but Dogen continues from these four statements, right, to carry yourself forward, to carry oneself or the self forward in order to realize the 10,000 dharmas is delusion. Again, this is Sojin's translation. And that the 10,000 dharmas advance and realize the self is enlightenment. 10,000 dharmas is a way of saying everything, <laughs> right? All things, all phenomena. This is a description of delusion and enlightenment. Delusion is to separate subject and object. But Dogen says that the 10,000 dharmas advance and realize the self is enlightenment, right? Our existence is an expression of the entire universe. We could say it more simply. 
Each thing is the same fundamentally and not separate. When we allow the 10,000 dharmas to advance instead of going out and grasping at them, the 10,000 dharmas verify ourself as the big S self. Right? But there is a little more that we could say. Right? When, and this is Sojin's uh, understanding, which is not obvious from these words, but uh, it's embedded in other fascicles or other chapters of the Shobogenzo. According to Sojin, when we, as individual phenomenal expressions of the whole, advance, when we engage in our lives, engage in activity, express ourselves through activity, the dharmas, the things that we tend to think of as other, advance as well. This is simultaneity, another aspect of non-separation. As Sojin puts it, when the self advances, the self turns the dharmas, and when the dharmas advance, the dharmas turn the self. Are you confused yet? <laughs> right. So there is this interpenetrating reality where it's not you over here with the dharmas advancing to you or you going out to the dharmas. They are completely mutually influencing and in a relationship. So it's not just like kind of passively sitting here waiting for the dharmas to advance and then, ah, you wake up, right? It doesn't work that way. So he's talking about living in relationship and we, we talk about this a lot, right? Relationship with each other in sangha, relationship with the wider sangha, which is all things, relationship with everything in our lives. Sojin calls this, he has this very poetic way of, of uh, describing what it is to be like this, he calls it selfless dharma play, right? It's playful, <laughs> and it's a play. Turning with things and allowing ourselves to be turned by things. To drive the wave and ride the wave at the same time. That's a kind of profound non-separation. It's not merely static understanding, right? And it is how the stillness of our zazen is dynamic, right? We sometimes say this, right? We, we, we keep saying, be silent and still, but it's not dead, right? It's engaged, vitally engaged, dynamic activity in stillness, completely alive. As Sojin says, an enlightened person is able to see clearly through the facade, or we might say the scenery of the samsara play Right? Samsara is a play. It's not real. It's one side of reality. It's the side you see when you're not in that unified state. Right? Let's see, where was I? The facade of samsaric play, and at the same time, to play out our part in the drama free of attachment. That's liberation. He says, as a Buddhist, you have to somehow enter into this play out of compassion for others as well as yourself without being engulfed by it. This is a form of enlightened practice. The enlightened person enters into delusion with all beings not holding aloof and becomes thoroughly drenched in delusion, <laughs> thoroughly one with this deluded life. 
but at that time, delusion is enlightenment. We can't escape our life by pulling away, he says. We can only find our freedom by entering, and then it's not an escape. When we enter, willingly opening ourselves to the pain, it is no longer suffering. That's the end of the quote. So this is what Dogen means with these phrases about delusion and enlightenment. As Dogen puts it, there are those who attain enlightenment beyond enlightenment, and there are those who are deluded within delusion. Right? Don't think that you're getting rid of delusion with enlightenment. They can't be really separated. Instead, we are free of our ideas about and suffering around everything that we concretize or conceptualize. Right? As this is bad, this is good, this is suffering, this is enlightenment, all of it. So I'm skipping um, a a bit to continue um, to get to this quote, um, which is after the hearing sounds and seeing forms. This quote, which is probably the most famous quote in the whole thing, and that is what Dogen says, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be enlightened by the 10,000 dharmas or the 10,000 things. To be enlightened by the 10,000 dharmas is to free one's body and mind and those of others. No trace of enlightenment remains, and this traceless enlightenment is continued forever. If only, yeah. So these are really practice instructions, right? They're telling us how to practice. And I want to just stop and look at this word study, right? In our lineage, we use this term study a lot, right? Uh, You know, we say, I'm studying this, or I'm studying that, and I don't just mean sutras. It's like, I'm studying, you know, why I have this karmic uh, propensity, you know, to be angry or whatever, right? And it's kind of a, it's a nice word in English because instead of like, I need to fix this, change it, you know, uh, get rid of it, it's more like engage with and learn from it, right? So we encourage each other, like, I'm studying this, right? Why don't you study that, study that, that thing that you do, right? Sojin suggests that study, however, is not quite the right way to translate the word that Dogen uses. And uh, Shohaka Okamura, of course, is a, a native speaker of Japanese, and Maizumi Roshi both point in the same direction. They say, too, that the word in Japanese that we translate as study and it has these nice, you know, associations for us, is actually closer to practice, right? To practice. So to practice the Buddha way is to practice the self. I think that puts a kind of different spin on it, right? To practice the self. Practice, that word in English, you know, has the flavor of repetition, right? We practice the piano, right? We practice our language skills. We practice various things, right? Repetition or maybe you know also engagement that's more than just reading and writing right more than just what goes on up here right any kind of skill right is something we practice it's kind of a habit but not an unconscious habit it's it's one with deep intention and devotion right if you really want to learn something you need to practice it so to study the self or to practice the self is to forget the self. (laughs) That's what happens. (laughs) Or we might now say to practice the self is to forget the self, right? 
Dogen says, as his teacher urged, to drop body and mind. That's forgetting the self. So we've just been talking about all this non-separation between this and that, self and other, body and mind, or anything, right? We drop body and mind. Uh, the Japanese there is closer to slough off body and mind. Think of a snake, right? You know, letting it go. But I think this dropping means the sense of our own independent body and mind, right? To forget that. And this ties in closely with the next statement, to forget the self is to be enlightened by the 10,000 dharmas, right? It refers back to the earlier words about not carrying yourself forward and grasping at things, right? But to allow the 10,000 dharmas to approach and then merge with them. The entire universe is our true self, our big self. So it follows then that to be enlightened by the 10,000 dharmas is to free your own body and mind, your awareness, and those of others, right? There are no others. And there is no you independent of anything else. So Sojin comments that if we experience this, this kind of forgetting of the self, dropping of body and mind, it is characterized by the samadhi of receiving and the samadhi of giving, this concentration in which, uh, one-pointed concentration in which receiving and giving happen, which is jijuyu samadhi, which we talked about just a couple of days ago. Self-joyous or self-fulfilling samadhi, right? This is in uh, the other fascicle, the other early fascicle called bendawa, and we have been chanting that as self-receiving and employing samadhi. Sojin continues, so there's this thing that comes to you as a gift, not something that you create or make happen, and that then returns to all things. He says there's another kind of samadhi or uh, experience, which is called tajuyu, other fulfillment samadhi. So jijuyu is you receiving and enjoying the light of your own true nature as an individual dharma and, and, and your essence of mind, your essence of awareness. Tajuyu means that you use what you receive to help bring others to realization, right? Or that your realization affects others, whatever you do. He says if we don't use our realization to help bring forth the light in others, it will not sustain itself. We need to remain in relationship with these apparent others. So one is turning the light inward to receive and turning to illuminate the light in others. This is how we save all beings. If we fully integrate enlightenment and delusion, being human and being Buddha, it's effortless. We, are not, we don't have to do anything. Right. So I want to mention the other really famous section before we end for today, and I'll take some questions. Um, this is the firewood and ash, so I'm skipping again a little bit about riding in the boat and watching the shore. And then going down to the firewood and ash. And this is something that, when you think about it, makes a lot of sense, but when you delve into what Dogen says about it, again, you can get turned around, and it's in the turning around that the teaching happens. So this is uh, Sojin's translation, but you can follow the one um, in the book. Uh, firewood turns into ash and does not turn into firewood again. All right, you're all familiar with this. 
But do not suppose that the ash is after and the firewood is before. We must realize that firewood is in the state of being firewood and has its before and after. Yet, having this before and after, it is independent of them. This we would call Dharma position, right? This is this moment, ash. <clears throat> ash is in the state of being ash and has its before and after. Just as firewood does not become firewood again after it is ash, so after one's death, one does not return to life again. And I just want to, as an aside, say this would seem to be in contradiction with a lot of Buddhist teaching about rebirth, right? He just clears it away. <laughs> right? You don't come back as you. <laughs> Thus, that life does not become death is a confirmed teaching of the Buddha Dharmas, of the Buddha Dharma, sorry. For this reason, life is called the non-born. Sojin's translation again. That death does not become life is a confirmed teaching of the Buddha Dharma. Therefore, death is called non-extinguished. Life is a period of itself. Death is a period, or we could say a phenomenon or an expression of itself. They are like winter and spring. We do not think that winter becomes spring, nor do we say that spring becomes summer. Actually, we do. <laughs> right? But maybe that's not the way to think of it. But it's a good way. If you think about how we do think that way, right? Winter becomes spring. And you can maybe get a flavor for what he's saying as, you know, winter is just winter. And when spring arrives, right, you know, the flowers come and the birds sing. Right? They, they don't really have a before and after. They have independent expression. So in this teaching, which I'll continue with tomorrow, Dogen expresses his understanding of being and time, which he fully develops in this other essay called Uji, Being Time, which is a very rich fascicle, which maybe we'll study someday. Right? We all have this experience of a continuous self, just to talk about ourselves and not firewood and ash, right? Even though we know we are not really the same thing from one apparent stage to another. And this hits me every time I look at pictures of my college friends, right, on Facebook. It's like, oh my God, is that so-and-so? Is that me? Right? It is and it isn't. <laughs> we say that time flows, but it also has moments, right? Childhood, babyhood, gray hair and wrinkles, are independent moments, right? Childhood is childhood, now is now. You can't really pin down when the stage of childhood becomes adolescence or adulthood, but we keep trying, right? We celebrate a particular birthday. We say 13, right? Or 16 or 21 or 18. Now you can vote, right? You're an adult. It's just us trying to pin things down and kind of emphasize that there's a transition, right? That now you've become this other you, but it's still you, right? We celebrate a particular birthday or a biological or social marker trying to control and understand this process. But it's really just our attempt to order and understand the fundamental truth, which is change and transformation. So I will continue tomorrow with some other this and some other parts of this amazing teaching because if I get started on firewood and ash 
we'll be here the rest of the day. Um, and I haven't even talked about the moon and the reflection in the water, which is also a wonderful uh, expression of Dogen's understanding of enlightenment and delusion. So that's what we'll do tomorrow and try to get through the second page. Are there questions, comments? <laughs> Hands are up. Okay, I saw you first. Um, okay, so we talked about winter is winter, spring is spring. Um, can you explain what happens when the seemingly Yeah, so it's not that those things don't exist, and I'll talk a little bit about this tomorrow, going back to Nishiari Bokusan, who has some pretty clear things to say about that. These things are all, it's like one side and the other side. So like when we are in samsara, we're suffering, right? But there is no place called nirvana. There's no other place to go to, right? That will, is like the other shore, <laughs> It's like heaven, and then you know everything is fine. It's it's that's part of what later on he says. When one side is actually it's in here. When one side is illuminated, the other side is dark. Right? It's like two sides of a coin. Reality is one thing. It depends on how one sees it. So cause and effect are somewhat like that. Right? It's not that there is no cause and effect, but from the point of view of now, right? It's just winter. From the point of view of now, it's just spring. Right, and of course, you know, if like we have climate change, so this is a little now it's complicated for us, right? But um, yeah, we can also say that the kind of win if we have a mild winter, we can go into all of our thinking about it. Oh, it was a mild winter, and you know now and spring is early, right? We've never had you know the birds come back this soon, or the birds get got caught in a storm, and you know we, we now we have fewer birds. We go through all of these understandings of what these things are and how they relate to each other. And we do it with our own karma, right? I had this kind of childhood, and now I'm this kind of person. <laughs> but you are just you, right here and right now. And when you were a child experiencing what you experienced, that was childhood. It's not that they, there is no before and after, but this moment is also independent of before and after. And it's, I can talk about it, but it's like you realize it, you see it, or you don't. And you just keep chanting this and sitting until you see it, right? Okay. Okay, does that help? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. When you were talking about, um, like, turning the light, like, I'm not going to probably say this the way that you said it, but... In order to sustain enlightenment, you have to turn it outwards to all beings. Is that in, first of all, is that an absolute or relative reality? And then how does that, what does that look like? Yeah, so this is another, it's like almost, it's like this one, it's all one question and it's all one answer, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, so turning the light around to illuminate yourself is that light of awareness that we tend to like go out there and say, there's Kat and she's got her hand up but she has a question and I see, you know, sitting next to her is Sherry. It's like I'm out there identifying the dharmas, the 10,000 things, right? And I'm, my awareness is turned outward. When we sit, we turn that around and we look for the source of our awareness, right? Which is 
the, usually expressed as light, right? That's how we talk about it. When we turn that light back around, the light of awareness back around, it illuminates everything equally. It has no preferences, it doesn't differentiate. It's like when the sun comes up, it, everything it touches is illuminated, right? Without, you know, the sun doesn't say, I'm gonna, I like that mountain, I'm gonna light that up, right? And I'm gonna leave that swamp and, you know, it just rises and the light goes out, right? To all things. So you can just sit with your light turned inward on your solitary mountain, lost, so to speak. This is, this is the teaching of Mahayana, which is big vehicle, you know, Buddhism, that, that's the vow to save all beings, right? You could sit there and just enjoy your own enlightenment and not care, right, about anybody else, but then you're not practicing compassion. And since we're bodhisattvas that try to help others or that who are dedicated to selflessly helping others, right? We remain in this world, the samsaric world, and we remain in relationship, which, you know, is sometimes creates what we experience at least as difficulties. That person's obstructing me, that person is in my way, that person's got something I want and I'm not getting, right? All that stuff is, right, we, we work with that and we try to transform that with our practice and our understanding. And if we liberate ourselves from that kind of thinking, then we can also maybe liberate others. And we liberate the others in our own minds, right? No, no, that's just cat, right? <laughs> she's, she's just cat. Right? Beyond my ideas about cat mm-hmm. and beyond my assumptions about cat. And by not feeding Delusions. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. And then you can just be you and I can just be me. Something like that. Mm-hmm. If anybody online wants to say something, they just should just unmute. Because I probably won't see your hand go up. Anyone else? Have a question. Yes. Is your Mel Weissman translation at the San Francisco Zen Center? Uh, this, uh, what I'm quoting, is actually from a, a series of talks he gave at the Chapel Hill Zen Center when he used to visit there. And they're online on their website. Um, I'm not sure that the translation, I, I think that, that the San Francisco Zen Center chants the one that's on the card. Tanahashi, yeah. Tanahashi. And... Uh, so those talks were given, I think, in the 90s, and there are four of them. And he doesn't cover the entire Genjo Koan, but he, you know, he picks and chooses some, uh, some aspects of it. So I went back and reread them. I used to practice in Chapel Hill, so Thank you. you're welcome. So I just want to say, if you're not coming back tomorrow or you know, just joining us for today, there are a couple of translations and commentaries that in English that are really helpful, and one of them is Shohaka Okamura's Realizing Genjo Koan, right? which is, you know, it's a book, <laughs> uh, with his commentary um, and his sort of exposition, and a lot, as, as he tends to do, a lot of really looking at things character by character and trying to unpack, you know, saying, oh, well, there are different ways of writing on, right, and of, of koan, and trying to understand how uh, Dogen was using language. Um, tomorrow I'll be talking about uh, more about Nishiari Bokusan, 
And just to say right now, um, he was born in the early 19th century, 1821. So we're talking, you know, a while ago. Um, but he was active in the second half of the 19th century. And one of his disciples, uh, Kishizawa Ian, was a teacher of Suzuki Roshi's. So there's a direct connection in our lineage between these teachers. Um, and he wrote a tremendous amount about Dogen. And again, he's one of these people who expresses himself, you know, very, <laughs> very strongly. Um, so I'll be quoting from him. There are, uh, that's part of a three translation compendium that includes Sojin's commentary on the Nishiari Bokusan, uh, Okamura, and I forget who the third one is right now. Um, anyway, three, three translations, three, three commentaries. Um, and then there's an older one by someone in a different lineage named uh, Yasutani Roshi, and I'll be quoting him tomorrow, another fierce Japanese teacher who basically says, you know, the reason you can't leap clear of birth and death is you're all cowards. <laughs> I won't quote all that because it doesn't sound compassionate, but sometimes compassionate speech is, you know, isn't necessarily kind. Or kind speech doesn't sound like kind speech, but basically he's trying to wake us up. So... I'm drawing a lot, obviously, on these uh, other teachers. Yeah, Mel. Can you talk a little bit more about the line, yet an attachment blossoms fall and an aversion leaves bed? Yeah, what do you think? What does it bring up for you? Mm, I don't know. Yeah. I guess, like, that after, after all the things, then it's just sort of, like, moving to an expression of the beauty of, like, what's happening and impermanence. So we leap clear of the many and the one, right? Which makes it sound like, you know, uh, also our preferences, right? We, we leap clear of the many and the one is, you know, to merge with unity and unify, well, to unify everything, right? And that means, you know, there are no birth and no death, but yes, there also are birth and death, right? We see these phenomena coming and going, but in attachment, blossoms fall. So like we prefer flowers, right? We like flowers doesn't matter, they're still gonna die, right? They're going, the blossoms will fall to the ground. And we don't like weeds, but what's wrong with weeds? It's just, we don't like them, right? And they spread. And then we are like, weeds, gotta get rid of them, right? So we keep experiencing these things. It's not that maybe we don't have any preferences, but we're not caught by our preferences or by the things that we normally maybe don't like, right? The way is not difficult for those with no preferences, as one sutra says. <laughs> Of course we have preferences, we're people, right? But not to be trapped by them, not to let them torture us. If you have to pull the weed, just pull the weed. And when the flower falls, just pick it up and, you know, put it in the compost. Yeah. Okay, thank you very much. <laughs>